Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. It's easy to forget sometimes that difficult journeys and extreme environments are not reserved for ice caps and mountaintops. We find them right here at home, among people we know, in the emergency room and in the ICU. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Pauline Chen talks about her experiences as a medical student and transplant surgeon and what they've taught her about the practice of medicine. Too often, Chen argues, the focus on saving lives gets in the way of caring for patients who are approaching death. Chen writes the New York Times column, Doctor and Patient. Her book, Final Exam, Surgeon's Reflections on Mortality, was a New York Times bestseller. Her works appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times Magazine, and the New York Times Book Review, and has been nominated for a National Magazine Award. Pauline Chen, thank you for talking with me today. My pleasure. It's an honor to be on your show. So your book, Final Exam, really tells uh, the story of a doctor's journey. And you begin the book with the statement of a paradox. You say that the essential paradox of medicine is it is a profession premised on caring for the ill that also systematically depersonalizes dying. I was wondering if you could talk about that. I think that's a great point that you've picked up from the book, because that idea, that paradox is what really compelled me to begin writing. It's interesting because I did not start writing the book until after my training was done. And that happened for several reasons. One, probably the biggest reason was that I was too busy clinically to write in any kind of systematic way, or too busy to really reflect. But as I neared the end of my training, I felt this incredible need to write. And, you know, it started with a letter to a friend that never got sent because I just sort of wrote and wrote and wrote. But 
as soon as I finished my training, and it was nine years of a surgical training after medical school, I signed up for a writing course at UCLA where I was on the faculty. And the writing course at that time, I was writing fictional stories because I still hadn't really recognized what was going on, but obviously something was driving me to do this. And one afternoon, the teacher I was taking class with said, Pauline, I need to talk to you. And I thought I had gotten into trouble, like any good medical (laughs) student for me. I was like, oh my gosh, I got into trouble. But she pulled me aside and she said, you know, these stories really, you need to do something with them. They need Hmm. a home. Were you writing about medical stories? Sort of, sort of. Well, it was interesting because when she said that, it was as if she had given me permission to really begin to think about what I was writing. And what I realized were these short stories, these these fictionalized pieces were really fictionalized accounts of grief, grief over patients that I, patients whom I had not cared for in a way that I really might have hoped to have cared for mm-hmm. when I started medical school. And so I realized that they were actually sort of pieces, little pieces of that paradox sort of in me, that feeling like, you know, here I went to medical school wanting to help people, wanting to do the right thing and be the kind of doctor that I had always dreamed about being. But in fact, the kind of medicine I was practicing was not that, Mm -hmm. or that I had changed somehow during all of these years of training. And so the paradox that you asked me about, I think that sort of incredible discomfort and it was and it was a profound discomfort with you know because if you take someone who's young and most of us when we're young we're idealistic and you say you know go for it go for that ideal but in the end you end up turning into something different Hmm. it's very difficult you know it's interesting that you say that you kind of go in as uh with one state of mind and you feel like you're coming out somewhere else because in your book you start this journey talking about the human dissection uh, that you take in anatomy class in medical right. school. And what struck me about this so much is, first of all, that you talk about it as a ritual, one of the many rituals of medical school. And again, it it made me think, uh, as I was thinking actually of Joseph Campbell, who writes mm-hmm. uh, The Powers of Myth and the, these journey sequences. Right. And these journeys that people take are always connected to these rituals. And so this ritual that you talk about in that language is of the dissection and the ways in which the medical school intentionally tries to depersonalize, literally take the person away from the cadaver. Could you talk about that? Right. Well, I think anyone who even contemplates medical school or hears about medical school knows that at some point you have to dissect a human body. And all of us were very, very anxious about it. And What was interesting, and I have to tell you how medical schools have changed since then, which I think is really quite wonderful as well. But in terms of my own preparation, there was literally no preparation. Mm -hmm. We went into class one day. We knew we would be dissecting in the very first semester we started medical school. 
and we had a lecture and I had a wonderful anatomy teacher who was very kind and very compassionate. But, you know, there's a system in place that, you know, all the medical schools across the country were doing. And so it's, it was part of this ritual, this progression of becoming a medical professional that we were starting this journey we were starting. And so the first class, which I can remember so clearly, he would, he told us about, you know, how to read the body as a map. So what was anterior, what was posterior on a meta, mm. on a human body, what was superior and inferior. So we would know directions, like when we needed to find something, if somebody said, oh, it is distal to this artery, we would know where to go to find it. So he went over that, and the end of the class, he talked about proceeding into the anatomy laboratories and gave us a few hints, like don't wear your regular clothes because they'll smell like formaldehyde, and don't wear your contacts because they'll be unusable afterwards because they'll have totally soaked in the formaldehyde. And he said, you know, lemon juice is really good for the scent on your hands as well. And I never, I, I didn't really get that at the time, although quickly learned that even when you're wearing gloves, the scent just permeates. And, you know, afterwards you go to dinner or to lunch and you smell the formaldehyde yeah. in your hands. And and the cadaver is not given a name. You're not given. Right. So we went into, so we had um, these laboratories and in each laboratory room, there were four cadavers and four students to a cadaver. And there was a whole hallway because... Um, there were almost 200 students in my class, first-year medical students. And I remember going to my cadaver, and, you know, they're in, they're covered in white plastic body bags, and they are intentionally placed, they were intentionally placed face down. And we started with the back. And I suspect it's because it was probably the easiest part of the body to start with. I don't think any of us could have started with the face. You're asking young people who were, you know, a week earlier were walking down the street to take on this incredible task of, you know, suddenly you're asked to cut nerves and arteries that were critical to life. You're doing work that is so final, right? Mm -hmm. Even though the, the person is dead, but it's really, I mean, you're transecting that artery and it'll never come back together. Yeah. And so there's no, yeah, it was very, very difficult. But the extraordinary thing about the experience was that that cadaver, that person, despite being dead, still was very much another human being in my eyes and my classmates' eyes. I mean, when we uncovered the bag, yes, all I saw was the back, but I also saw her hands. Mm and her arms and her nail and, polish yes she had coral nail polish and it was probably time for a new manicure because you could see the little sort of moons of you know regular nail i mean unpolished nail underneath and her arm one of her arms had a tan line for a watch or wrist you could tell she was an elderly woman she was very finely built and i imagined that because the line for her watch was so thin that it was one of those watches that older women sometimes used to wear with a little chain that connects the ends mm -hmm. of them. And as we dissected her, we learned more about her body, but through about her life, but through her body. So there's a line in your book 
that's actually quite beautiful. But you say, my lab partners and I would know our cadaver's body better than any patient we would ever take care of. Yet in her book of life, we were to begin with the epilogue and attempt to read backwards. And what struck me about that line is not only is, is it so beautifully written, but also that in a sense, one of the objectives of this process, which was both to educate you about the body, but then to remove the body from the person or the identity, in a sense, it doesn't work for you. Yeah, it was that. That's that's very interesting, Michael, because it's true. I think they were, you know, the educators were trying. Medical school educators were trying to help us into the process by distancing us. They were, they were to the best of their abilities. I think at that time, trying to do the right thing, but in fact. I think all of us, we, we wanted to know more about these bodies. All we got was a card that had, you know, male or female and the age. We didn't even know what the patient, patient, excuse me, it was my first patient, what the person died of. And I remember, so there was the group with a cadaver across from us in this room of, in our laboratory room. They had this huge, you know, just strapping male and I remember all of us sort of trying to think, what did this person do? I mean, he was incredibly muscular and he was a, a big guy and he was kind of young. And, you know, why did he die? And so for our lady, our woman, we were just so curious. And it wasn't until several weeks in, actually a couple months in, toward the end of the dissection, that we discovered what she had died of. We were working in the pelvis in the abdomen. And, you know, the first thing we noticed was that there was this thin scar, midline scar, scar going all the way from, you know, just underneath her breastbone, all the way down to the tip of her pubis. And so we knew she had some kind of operation. And we opened it up. And there were all sorts of things that were missing hmm. that we were supposed to find. We were supposed to find something called the omentum, which is this it's gorgeous in real life. It's a beautiful bib of fat that covers, that's right in the front of the belly, right underneath all the muscles, and, and it covers all the organs and protects them. But ours was missing. And I remember being so disappointed because I read about it and it sounded beautiful and I wanted to see it and we couldn't find it. And we were asked to find the uterus and the ovaries and the fallopian tubes. And I was deadly curious about finding. I, I really wanted to see those because I, re I remembered in fifth grade, and that was around the time I started thinking about being a doctor. It was actually in elementary school, taking a family life course, um, you know, sort of basic sex, edu sex education for elementary school students. And my teacher at that time saying, oh, this is what the uterus and ovary look like. And she raised both hands and, and both arms and had her hands as fists and she said, so I'm the uterus and my arms are the fallopian tubes and my hands are, the, you know. And so I sort of expected to see someone, something that looked like her in the pelvis and we couldn't, there was nothing. But we kept coming on uh, upon these little, they were almost like pebbles in this woman's pelvis and we didn't know what to say, what to do. My, my lab partners and and I and finally we asked our anatomy one of the ana anatomy professors for help like where is the uterus where's the omentum where's and he looks in and he's sort of you know poking around and he said I'm sorry I think I think you're 
your lady, I think she died of ovarian cancer. Mm. And I remember feeling incredibly sad at that moment. Not so much because I couldn't see those things, which I'd wanted to see, but, you know, it became very real. It's very interesting. We became very attached to this woman. I still, it's amazing. If you mention a body part to me, and and this is after having seen the anatomy of, you know, so many people in operations and medical, I almost inevitably think of hers first. Wow. You know, there's this, um, as, as I was reading this section on the dissection, and essentially the goals that, the rituals that are being set up for you to complete, there's a way in which you also exhibit this paradox a little bit in your writing. There's a line uh, which you say that your cadaver was used during the practical exam part of the, the class. Right. And that you're so proud, quote, you're so proud of the beauty of our cadaver's anatomy. There's a way in which there's a certain degree of ownership of that. And I was thinking to myself that that must be, in a sense, an occupational hazard. Or I don't even know if it's a hazard, but it's an occupational thing where you're dealing with a person, you know, and a life uh, who has an identity. But you're also, in a sense, your job is them. Your job is working on them. Oh, my God, Michael, you're so you're so perceptive. That's so right. And it's interesting because I hadn't thought about it until now. But in fact, that is probably our first lesson about this sense of ownership. It's a very, it's very, I think it is an occupational hazard of the people we take care of as if they could be objectified in that way. Absolutely. That's a very interesting point because if you listen to doctors and, you know, I'll speak about surgeons because I'm familiar with that, we'll often talk about my patient, my, the, you know, the operation I did, how successful it was, or it also leads to the other problem, which is when a patient dies, it's really, really difficult. I think one of the reasons all of this depersonalization started is because when a patient of yours dies and you have done, let's say you've done, uh, you've taken out the cancer, the colon cancer, mm-hmm. you've done a resection, and that patient dies of colon cancer, you can't help but feel responsible in some part. You know, it's it's interesting to me because since I wrote the book, I've done a fair amount of speaking, I've visits to medical schools and hospitals and I've spoken to colleagues all over the country. And it's very interesting to me because many of them will remember patients that they've cared for where they have done the operation or they've given the chemotherapy or they were the primary care. And that patient, that person died. And they will remember, you know, decades after they've taken care of the person, exactly what they did. And they will ask themselves decades later, you know, should I have taken out more? What should I have done differently? And so it's this profound, so it's a funny thing that kind of ownership, you know, I think it is a hazard. I think part of it is probably what drives us to do things that don't 
always make sense. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what drives a transplant surgeon in the middle of the night when they could be in bed, when they could be, you know, in bed, they could be, you know, having dinner, they could be with their family. What drives them to keep on doing the operation and doing a small part of the operation over and over until it is perfect? It What drives them is, yes, there is compassion, absolutely, or there's the sense, I think it is compassion, even though it may not be obvious. But I think there's a sense that I have to do this right for this person because this is my work. Yeah. One one of the things that I found interesting also is that as much as you describe the process of medical education and your apprenticeship, essentially, in this process as being one of depersonalizing or keeping you away from the broader ramifications of death and dying. There's ways in which not only you are seeing things differently, but that there are also doctors who are not following the script. So for example, you have a a patient who is dying and as general protocol in the ICU, the family is left alone with the dying patient screens are put up around the family and the doctors remove themselves. Could you talk about this doctor who kind of breaks the rule here? Oh, that was probably one of the most important moments in my training. What happened was we were taking care of a gentleman who had um, cancer. And initially we thought we could get him better and send him home. And every day when I rounded with the team, his wife would be in his room. But she would come up to me every day when we rounded. So we'd go into the room, we'd say hello to her husband, examine him, talk to them about the plans. And she would follow us out of the room. And every day she would ask us when her husband would be discharged so that she could take him home so that he could die at home, Mm -hmm. because that had been his wish. And every day we said, oh, soon. But one night, in the middle of the night, and I was on call, he just wasn't doing well, and he ended up getting transferred to the ICU. And soon thereafter, again, when I was on call, it was clear that he was going to die. And so I called the attending surgeon, the head surgeon, the responsible surgeon at home in the middle of the night. And I said, you know, Mr. So-and-so is not looking good. I think he's going to die. And he said, well, call the family and I'll be right in. Mm -hmm. And I remember her coming in to the ICU. She looked terrible that night, obviously. She was about to lose her lifelong partner. And I brought her to her husband's room. And then soon thereafter, the surgeon arrived. And I brought him over to the room too. Now, we were talking about rituals earlier. And the ritual I had learned in my training Mm -hmm. up until then was that anytime anyone is dying in the ICU, you bring the family in. And then you take off. You keep busy. You either go to the computer and do your work or you just leave. And it was 
a ritual that I think we did because it was really, it's very difficult or it was very difficult for us to be there, to see the patient dying, to feel like we had some response. Maybe we had to, to think maybe we had some responsibility mm -hmm. in, in all of this. And so that's what everybody did. You know, those in trading, you know, senior doctors, we all did that. So when I brought the senior surgeon to the room, I fully expected him to come out with me. We would close the curtains and just sort of wait outside mm -hmm. for the patient to die. But I brought him in and I turn around to leave and I go to close the curtains and he's still in there. <laughs> I say to myself, isn't he coming out? Why isn't he coming out? Like, like we all do. And so I kind of close the curtains and sneak away thinking, okay, he's going to come out later, but he doesn't come out. Hmm. And, you know, minutes go by and I finally decide to peek in and I open the curtains and I look in and this is what I will never forget. The man is in his bed. The patient is in his bed and the surgeon is standing next to the wife who is standing next to her husband's bed. And she has her hands, her hand in his, in, in her husband's hand. And the surgeon is talking to her quietly. So I can't really hear what he's saying, but it's obviously comforting her because she had been, you know, sobbing earlier and she was just sort of breathing quietly. So I see the surgeon you know, raise one hand and point to the monitors. And I think he's telling her about how the heart beats at the very end of life. Mm. And I see him pointing to her husband's chest. And I'm sure that he's telling her what the last breaths of the living are like. And then he puts his hand on the man's shoulder. And I believe he's telling her that even though her husband is dying and even though her husband may not, you know, be alert, be talking, be responding, I believe that he was telling her about the final comfort of her presence. Hmm. And so I just, I, I just watched this and then being well-trained in the ritual, I close the curtains and step away. And about 20 minutes later, the surgeon steps out and tells me that the patient has died. And several minutes after that, the wife comes out and the next day, actually not the next day, but sort of a few days later, I receive a, a letter from the wife and it's a note telling me, it's a thank you note telling me that although her husband did not die at home as they had originally hoped, that he had died a dignified and peaceful death. And that was all that he had really wanted. And so for days afterward, I kept that note in my pocket. 
And it was like a reminder to me that as physicians, we could do more than just mm. cure. And for the rest, it was it was so interesting. That night, it was as if, and I write about this in the book, it's, it was as if, you know, I had been in this dark room for a long time and I couldn't really see around. And suddenly this shade was lifted and light was let in. And for the rest of my training, the line that we could do more than just cure mm. just would come come to mind every time I had a patient that was dying. You know, um, for people who don't know you and who just read your resume, um, you look like such an unbelievable, high-achieving research doctor. You have... <laughs> You have, um, you know, in addition to writing a book on, and I tell you, I'm, I'm not going to just gush about you. I have a point to this. but <laughs> oh God, I'm getting very uncomfortable <laughs> well, here. No, but in, a, in addition to the book that you wrote and the column that you wrote for the Times, which you wrote f over 200 columns for the New York Times, and the 25 research papers that you've written, you have a resume of somebody who looks like an incredible go-getter. And I worked with people at the Dana-Farber in Boston who seem to have um, an incredible thirst for medical research and who were trying to cure everything. But the difference is, is that you also have, within your, uh, your history as a doctor, these really interesting things, like, for example, you were um, voted the outstanding employee at Bridgeport Hospital. Um, the first time this was ever given to a physician in training by uh, the staff. And that's not an outlier. You also received a humanist award by Yale New Haven Hospital System for most exemplifying empathy, kindness, and care in the age of advancing technology. In UCLA, the nursing staff voted you Outstanding Physician of the Year. What The question I have for you is this. How is it that so many people end up doing one or the other of those two things? And is there a cost for you personally to be able to do those two things well, to be a transplant surgeon, to be working at the VA, to do all the things that you do, and simultaneously to pay so much attention to patient care, to palliative care. I think too often we think that it has to be one or the other. You know, we're very, you know, Cartesian in that sense, right? You know, we have to either be depersonalized or not. It was interesting because I had a surgeon interview me and who said to me, well, you know, all this fuzzy wuzzy, you know, you know, kindness thing. That's great. It's great in the, you know, in the family waiting room, but we got to hang it up when we go to the OR and just sort of, you know, tough it up and sort of not think about the patient. But I really disagree with that. I said, I think that in fact, we are always thinking about the patient. And I think perhaps we need to sort of phrase it differently or think about it even more broadly and fluidly. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are some great people in healthcare. I think that if you look at, I would say the vast majority of people that decide to go into medicine, do it because they really care and they want to do the right thing. But 
I think there are a lot of societal pressures. There are a lot of, for instance, the average time that there was a study done on the average amount of time a doctor spends with a patient. And, you know, when you think about it, oh, how much time do you think your doctor spends with you? Well, you'd like to think at least 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's, it's not 20, it's like 11 minutes. Wow. And the pressure to see, you know, X number of patients at a certain amount of time is getting greater, greater and greater. You know, the, the, the pressure from insurance systems, from insurance companies, from healthcare systems, it's huge. And so even if you wanted to spend a lot of time talking to your patients, it's really, really, really hard. Right. Um, and you get dinged. You know, you get slapped on the wrist and it's not easy to maintain that when the pressure on you from everyone else is saying, no, you know, you can't, you can't spend an extra 15 minutes talking to Ms. Smith who just got the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Hmm. You know, when you think of the, about the average amount of time a physician spends with patients, ideally in our system, your doctor would talk to you about advanced directives about how you want to die. But when you think about how long that conversation should be, how are you going to talk about it in an appointment that really lasts 11 minutes? Right, yeah. In any meaningful way. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you about your work was, you know, I'm a historian of exploration. I'm interested in extreme environments. But extreme is a relative term. What's extreme for, let's say, a British explorer, you know, trekking about in the Antarctic or the Arctic may not be very extreme for the Inui who view this as their home. And so it's a very relative kind of benchmark, what's extreme. And it struck me that the people that you talk about in your book, people who are very sick or elderly, are essentially moving into an extreme environment. Oh, they're amazing. <laughs> and, and so it's that relative to the environment they live in, it has become an extreme environment. Yet we don't actually like give them space on the lecture circuit for talking about their experiences. In fact, I would say for most people who are in a precarious place like that, the polite thing to do is not to talk about it. Right. So I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well... One of the things, so there's often the assumption that dealing with people who are dying is really depressing or you don't want to talk about it at all because it's just so difficult. And there is an aspect, absolutely, that's difficult because it's that sense of responsibility that you have to the person you're caring for. That is very difficult. On the other hand, it is incredibly rewarding working with people who are at the end of their life. I feel like it's been such an honor to sit at these people's bedsides and talk to them or have them talk to me or to have done something, no matter how small, to make that part of their journey, which is extreme. I mean, how many of us go there and come back to talk about it, mm. right? but having helped them in some way so they aren't alone or have done it. One of the things that I think is really a challenge for all providers, but especially for providers, I think, who are caring for people 
who are in one of those extreme positions is trying to figure out how do we care for you in a way that's meaningful to you? Mm-hmm. You know, what's important to you? Because it's very easy, I think, at the end of life or in these these areas that are unknown to the rest of us to, to sort of assume that things should work a certain way or that this is what a good death is. This is what a dignified death is. They'll want their family surrounding them or they'll want music playing or they mm. want. And so that's really challenging. I think that's really difficult, but people are unbelievable, you know, and, and I think, I don't know if this is what draws you to your research, but one thing that you learn in taking care of people who are critically ill or who are at the end of life is that the human being's capacity for strength, for love, for generosity is unbelievable. I just noticed a lot that people at the end of their lives were often really generous in a way that just blew my mind. So I remember once I was taking care of this young man that was dying and I just, I was devastated because he wasn't that much older than I was. And he had just gotten married a few years earlier. It was the love of his life. And they were just a lovely couple. And I just was working very hard to try to make sure that, you know, he had good care, care as he wanted it. But one day the wife came up to me and said, Pauline, are you going to take some time off? And I said, why? (laughs) And she said, because we're worried about you. I was thinking, here they are. They're going through. They're they're in the North Pole of life, right? They're making this unbelievable journey, and they're still worried about me. So I looked into the research that had been done on this, and it turns out that for a lot of people – that the definition of dying well is very intimately linked with the sense of generosity, with a lot of these characteristics of care, of giving, of of giving back. And so it's 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 it, to me it's just it's really, really rich and interesting. Wow, that's so interesting. Pauline Chen, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Michael. It's been an honor. That's it for today. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website and Twitter page for links and other exploration-related stuff. The Twitter page also has a link to Zabrat, the great Canadian band that composed the music for the show. Please rate and review the show, too, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help make the show visible to new listeners. If you want to recommend a guest or get in touch, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.